our culture often is, and I think even increasingly so, kind of pressuring us to kind of choose one side or the other, forcing things into a dichotomy, reducing things to just uh, either this or that. Uh, one of my spiritual fathers would refer to that as the tyranny of the or, that either or. You're either uh, with us or you're against us. You're either with them or you're with us. And there's no sense of compromise. There's no sense of reconciliation. There's no sense of kind of patience and kind of hearing the other. In fact, those types of words, that third way, the middle road, compromise, reconciliation, are often viewed as weaknesses. But the prophets seem to view these as an alternative way of being in the world. And so the story we're going to look at today comes from 2 Kings chapter 6. Um, it's a fairly short story, but I'm going, to, I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing, so just bear with me. Um, once, when the king of Aram, Aram would what would become Syria, so it's that same area. It would uh, occupy like Aleppo and Damascus. Once, when the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he took counsel with his officers. He said, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, take care, he would say, not to pass this place because the Arameans are going down there. The king of Israel sent word to the place of which the man of God spoke. More than once or twice he warned of such a place <clears throat> so that it was on alert. The mind of the king of Aram was greatly perturbed because of this. He called his officers and he said to them, Tell me who among us is with the king of Israel. Then one of his officers said, No one, my lord and king. It is Elisha, the prophet of Israel. He tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedchamber. And he said, Go and find where he is, and I will send for him and seize him. And he was told he is in Dothan. So he sent horses and chariots there and a great army, and they came at night and surrounded the city. When an attendant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, an army of horses and chariots had surrounded the city. His servant said, Alas, master, what shall we do? And he replied, Do not be afraid, for there are more with us than there are with them. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, please open the eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the servant, and he saw the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When the Armenians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, and he said, Strike this people, please, with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria, which would have been the capital city where the king of Israel would have been. Uh, as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men so they may see. And he opened their eyes, and they saw and that they were inside Samaria. And when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, Father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? <clears throat> he answered, No. Did you capture with your sword or your bow those whom you want to kill? Set food and water before them so they may eat and drink. And let them go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. After they ate and drank, he sent them on their way. And they went to their master. And the uh, Arameans, I'll get it in a second. And the Arameans 
no longer came raiding into the land of Israel. So we read these passages of Scripture, and I think we can kind of get through them or pass them fairly quick without kind of catching what's going on. So Aram, what would become Syria, is a, is a larger place, a more powerful economy, a more populous country, a, a more significant military. And, and this Syrian king is saying, all right, I've got some plans. We're going to go put our camp at this city, and we're going to capture the Israelites, and we're going to smash them. Except each time he shows up at the new place, the Israelites have already kind of fled. They've gotten out of Dodge. And so he's not an idiot. He realizes something's afoot. And so he calls his generals into his tent, and he says, all right, fellas, somebody's head's going to roll out of here because one of you are telling the Israelites where we're going to be. And I'm not going to put up with it anymore. So which one of you is it? And so you can kind of feel the tension in the air. One of the generals speaks up, says, it's not us, king. We haven't, we haven't deceived you. There are no spies in your group. It's, it's that man of God. It's interesting the text originally doesn't even refer to his name, but just in reference. It's that man of God in Israel. It's interesting that the Syrian already sees the prophet Elisha as a man of God. He's the one who tells the king of Israel where you are. He even knows what you say in your bedroom. Like, that's a little gross. So he says, all right then. Uh, Problem solved. All we have to do is go and take out that prophet, and then we'll make our plan, and we'll capture Israel, and we'll destroy the king and destroy their army. So he sends an army down to Dothan. There is one guy that they're after. Talking about disproportionate use of force. I throw a rock at you, you launch a missile at me. (laughs) You ever see this? Sometimes it happens with our children. You know, somebody takes a crayon and somebody else feels like they need to hit them over the head with a pan. That's that's disproportionate. Like, there's got to be some sense of semblance between our actions here. I just said good morning, and now you're taking my head off. That's not nice. One man, one army. So the army comes to the town of Dothan. They encircle the town, and here comes the the servant, the apprentice of the prophet. We don't don't get the servant's name in this story. In the next story, we're told it's Gehazi, so I'm imagining it's the same guy. So Gehazi... You know, he's been working for the prophet Elisha. He kind of strolls outside in the morning, probably to get some water or something. And he looks around, and they're like surrounded by the Syrian army. And he's like, oh, no. (laughs) This is not going to be good. So he walks back inside, and he's like, Elisha, man, it's been really good working for you. uh, You're the man of God and all, but uh, we're going to die today. (laughs) This is it. You know, we've been tipping off the Israelites one too many times, and somehow the Syrians found out about it, and they brought their whole army to take us out. And Elisha says, oh, don't be afraid, Gehazi. There are more with us than there are with them. To which Gehazi probably thought, oh, no, he really is crazy. (laughs) You know, I knew he was a little off. (laughs) These prophets, you know, they kind of talk funny and they act funny. 
But then they can do some amazing things. But here's an army out, outside, and this guy says there's more with us than there are with them. Mm. Help me, Lord. So the, so the prophet uh, says a prayer. Now, there's three times that he prays, and I would like to pause uh, here at this first prayer. He says, um, Lord, let my servant see. Give, give, my, give my apprentice eyes to see what I see. Now, <clears throat> Gehazi will walk back outside, and this time he sees an army of chariots of fire. But, but what's the difference? It's, he's not talking about literal sight. He's talking about metaphorical sight, but maybe more than just metaphorical sight. He's talking about spiritual sight, about being able to see things that we kind of can't see with our natural eye. We see our lives either going well or going poorly, and we think it's just uh, a matter of cause and effect with things that are happening. But there's, there's a bigger story to our lives. We are, we are created for a purpose, and there are spiritual realities and spiritual uh, circumstances and significances of what's going on in our lives. And there are times when we kind of feel like we're all alone, but the case is that we're not. We have each other, and we have the Lord. And sometimes it's hard for us to see that. We can get ourselves in a bind, and our eyes get blinded. So the psalmist will say, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Right? Give me, give me sight where I cannot naturally see. And so Elisha prays for his <coughs> servant, and his servant now, now sees. So <coughs> his servant can see this, and certainly that can give him a certain uh, sense of uh, encouragement that things were going to be all right. But then here comes the army, you know, charging down the hill. So Elijah lets out a second prayer. And in this prayer, he, plays, he prays for the army to go blind. Now, that's interesting, right? <clears throat> so on the one hand, he wants his servant to see, and we'll say kind of metaphorically. On the other hand, in a very real way, he wants his army to go blind, and I mean literally, <laughs> right? He doesn't want them to be able to see. But in some ways, there's something more going on here too, I think. I think <clears throat> that their uh, spiritual blindness was a reality, and that now in this prayer they have a physical blindness that will match it. Uh, John Newton tells a, a, a similar story. He was a slave boat captain. He's a British, and he would, would uh, captain a ship that would go back and forth between England, Africa, and the Caribbean. Um, later in life, as he was going blind, he had given up that role and had become an Anglican priest. And he was the one who would pin the words, uh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And it has that line in it, I once was blind, but now I see. Which is this incredible kind of irony. When he could physically see, he couldn't spiritually see. And then later in life, when he couldn't physically see, he could spiritually see. And there's that, that play with kind of seeing and an understanding and physically, literally seeing and spiritually seeing that I think is going on in this story between the servant of the prophet and this army that has now gone physically blind, matching their own kind of spiritual blindness. So now 
the prophet's getting a little playful. He's like, all right, all right. This is not the city you're supposed to be in. This is not, this is not the guy you're looking for. These aren't the drones you're looking for. <laughs> um, Hebrew mind trick. <laughs> he goes, I'll show you. I'll show you what you're looking for. Come with me. And he leads them from Dothan to Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom that the kingdoms had been divided by this point. The northern kingdom, the larger of the two, its capital is in Samaria. Its king is there. We don't even get the king's name. It just says the king of Israel. That, that, that's interesting in and of itself. And so when they get there, Elisha prays a third prayer. And in this prayer, he prays for the army to receive its sight. And I think on, on one kind of basic level, it is the story of them kind of literally getting to see again. But it's something more that's going to go on in the story. Uh, they're going to receive a sight kind of beyond just physically seeing. Because at this point, the king of Israel says to Elisha, Father, which I think is interesting. Apparently the king of Israel is Catholic. <laughs> Get it, Father? No? Okay. I thought that was funnier when I wrote that down. I apologize. <laughs> Don't take offense. I mean, if you do want to call me Father Robbie, I'll, I'll probably answer you, but... Uh, <clears throat> It is an unusual reference. You don't see it very often for the king to refer to the prophet as father. So he says, Father, shall I kill them? Should I kill them? I mean, asking this twice, it's interesting. Like, I got them. These people have been after us. And you've been, you've been tipping us off, keeping us safe. And now you brought them to our doorstep. We got them. Should I kill them? <laughs> I love his response. Uh, kill them? No. You should feed them. Did you capture these people? No. Was it your sword or your bow? No. No. You should give them something to eat and something to drink. In Arabic culture, both in, in ancient times and in current times, there's the practice of the sulha. It's a meal. Uh, sul means peace as opposed to war. Sulha was this reconciliatory meal uh, that people would practice who were at odds with each other. Um, musalaha, which means is the Arabic word for reconciliation, shares the same root. And I, I believe it also kind of shares a, a root with the Hebrew word for table, uh, shulhan, that the table is this place of reconciliation that it's difficult to have a meal with someone that you have enmity with. Like, if you're, if you're angry, if there's some kind of beef between the two of you or the group of you, it's difficult to kind of, kind of share that common meal. So, so the sulha would work like this. If uh, one person has odds with another, they would work it out by getting their families together for a big meal. And the person who had been harmed... Um, or, or the person who would do the harming would ask for forgiveness and there would be some kind of payment to kind of reconcile things. And then the families would share this meal together and in doing so, they would have brought peace between them. Everybody would leave the table knowing that um, it's good between us and you. In the, the Middle East these days, uh, there is quite a revival going on 
um, especially amongst the Palestinians. And what's interesting uh, about a lot of these new converts is that um, the, the, the Christians who are kind of working in those circles kind of expected to mostly reach uh, the more secularized folks, right? Folks who were, were, were Arab by ethnicity, the kind of Muslim kind of culturally, but not, not really committed. But those are the ones most likely to come to faith in Jesus. But as it turns out, that's not the case. Overly secularized people, they just pretty much not interested in religion. <laughs> but instead, there was this group, or this, there is this group, <clears throat> who kind of self-identified as, as Muslim, but they've kind of heard the story of Jesus in new ways, and they're coming to faith. They're believing. They're, they're being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. They don't, they don't necessarily self-identify with the word Christian, because to them that means something other than what they think they're experiencing. But it's an interesting group of people, and I want to tell the story about this one guy. He owns, he owns a little shop. This, this happened just a couple years ago. And he just sells like light bulbs and, and outlets and small electronics. And he was discipling these three young Palestinian boys. And one day he starts to talk about the sul, the sulha, the, the, the reconciliatory meal. And by analogy, he says, this is what Jesus of Nazareth was doing when he invited people to the table. That the, the Christian practice of communion is a religious version of the sulha. It's, it's a reconciliatory meal. It's people uh, coming together and they're, they're reconciling and ending in peace, not just between each other, but between themselves and God. That God is the one who's offering us peace through the meal of Jesus. Well, they're like, I don't think my imam taught me that. <laughs> imam, that's, that's the Muslim word for pastor, right? I don't think my pastor at the mosque taught me that. So they go and they tell their imam um, about this store owner who had compared the sulha to Christian communion. And the imam is like, that's blasphemy. You, you can't, we can't put up with that. I want you to go and burn his shop down. And so they do. They go and they burn his shop to the ground. And then they go to him and said, look, you were, you were leading us astray. Our imam said you were blasphemous, uh, teaching us that the sulha is this, this Christian communion, that Jesus invites us to the table to be forgiven. And the shop owner responded with, we should have a meal. We should practice the sulha now, because for you've wronged me, and I, and I want to forgive. And they're like, wait a minute. We just told you we burnt your shop down. He said, yes, I understand. I heard what you said. But Jesus is a forgiver. And he's called on me to forgive you. And I think we should have the meal together. So they had, they had the meal together. And the, the boys then converted to Christianity. They went back to their imam, who, of course, had told them to burn the place down. Side note, the place got rebuilt because the community heard that the store owner had offered the meal to the boys who had burnt down his shop, and so they took up a collection, and the guy was able to rebuild his shop. There's more to that story, uh, and I can tell you more, perhaps, if you, if you want to know, but for today, this meal that Elisha prompts the Israelite king to offer the Syrians, 
this meal that this shop owner offered those three boys is very much in keeping with the meal that Jesus offers us. That when we come to the table, this is the peace meal. We were at enmity with God. We have participated, right, in sin. We have done the things we shouldn't do. We have not done the things we should do. And we find ourselves at odds sometimes with our very selves. And so Jesus invites us to the table in order for us to be right with him, to be right with his Father, to be right with each other. So we like to say, well, I like Jesus, but I'm not so sure about the church. Well, Jesus likes the church, so maybe we should too. Or I like this church, but not that church. What in the world is that about? Or I'm okay with Jesus, but I'm not so okay with so-and-so, such-and-such. Look, at Jesus' table, he had, he had one guy who was a tax collector, right? Matthew. <clears throat> he had another guy who was a terrorist, a uh, zealot, uh, Simon. Not Simon Peter, but the other Simon, the one they call Simon the Zealot. <laughs> yeah? And they had to sit down together. One of the great things about this place is the diversity that I see here, the diversity in thought and practice. Uh, I saw a guy tweet recently. He said, if your church doesn't have both a Toyota Prius and a Chevrolet pickup in its driveway, then maybe you're not preaching the full gospel. <laughs> it's an interesting analogy, isn't it? The fact that we come from different places and different perspectives, but we all come in need of reconciliation, and we're all kind of invited to the table. Um, in a minute, we're going to serve the elements of communion. And today, as we do that, um, I want you to think of this meal as the sulha, as the meal of reconciliation, that Jesus is inviting us to the table for mercy, for peace, for forgiveness, and he wants us to be like him. Like Mother Teresa said, this requires meekness, it requires humility, and ultimately it also requires some forgetting. That forgiveness comes to its fullness in the forgetting. That the meekness doesn't hold a grudge because it doesn't assume that we were already in a position to have been offended. There's a poem that um, I read recently that also expresses this, and I'd like to share it with you. It's called Two Mothers. Long time ago, so I've been told, two angels once met on the streets paved with gold. By the stars in your crown, said the one to the other, I see that on earth you too were a mother. And by the blue-tinted halo you wear, you too have known sorrow and deepest despair. Ah, yes, she replied, I once had a son, a sweet little lad, full of laughter and fun. But tell of your child, oh, I knew I was blessed from the moment I first held him close to my breast. And my heart almost burst with the joy of that day. Ah, yes, said the other, I felt the same way. The former continued the first steps he took, so eager and breathless, the sweet, startled look which came over his face. He trusted me so. Ah, yes, said the other, how well do I know. 
But soon he had grown to a handsome, tall boy, so stalwart and kind, and it gave me much joy. To have him just walk down the street by my side, ah, yes, said the mother, I felt the same pride. How often I shielded and spared him from pain, and when he for others so cruelly was slain. When they crucified him and they spat in his face, how gladly I would have hung in his place. A moment of silence. Oh, then you are she, the mother of Christ. And she fell on one knee. And the blessed one raised her up, drawing her near, and kissed from the cheek of the woman a tear. Tell me the name of the son you love so, that I may share with your grief and your woe. She lifted her eyes and looking straight at the other. He was Judas Iscariot. I am his mother. Sometimes it's hard for us to realize how much other people go through and how much God is asking us to forgive. God's forgiven us all. There there is no one that we should not forgive. Our Heavenly Father is a forgiver, and we, His children, to be like Him must also be forgivers. In a world that would tell you to get what's yours and get ahead, to take advantage, or certainly get revenge, certainly that was the world of ancient Israel. Father, what should we do? Should we kill them? Should we kill them? No, king, we should feed them. One of the best parts about that passage of scripture is how it ends. It says that once they have been fed and they had something to drink, they were sent back home and they never attacked Israel again. What uh, fighting can't accomplish, food can and that it can heal us in ways that change us from aggressors into non-aggressors, from perpetrators into non-perpetrators. And we get this, all of us who have been the aggressor and been the perpetrator, get the opportunity to come to the table, to be forgiven, to be transformed and then to go out and live in peace the best we can with one another.